Welcome to Forecast, the foreshadowed podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. This season, our theme is Songs of Ascents, Pilgrimage and Worship, exploring the journeys we make in search of wholeness in God. I'm Josh, and with me today is Alan Altani, a septuagenarian college professor of religious studies and a poet. Today, we will hear him read one of the poems that he wrote and that we published earlier this year on Foreshadow, as well as hear about his journey of faith and what has nourished and strengthened him. So, Alan, welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Great. I, I, and it's great to have, you, to have you here to discuss your life and your work with us. And the um, bi biography that I just read um, was one that you had written about being a septuagenarian college professor. You also have written that you've been a factory worker, a swineherd on a farm, hotel clerk, various other jobs in addition to what you, what you do. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself to our listeners, um, uh, where um, where you come from, what you do, and perhaps if there's a thread of the the kind of work that you have done in your life and um, and um, what brought you to what you are doing now. Yes, I was uh, born in Sharon, Pennsylvania, 1945, which makes me 77 now, and which in itself is a pilgrimage. Hmm. Uh, and I now live in Ocala, Florida. And in between, I lived in a, quite a few states. And as you mentioned, a few uh, done different kinds of uh, work, um, including when I was in my 20s, uh, Contrary to what I had done growing up, I started writing poetry uh, in uh, Minnesota when I was living on a farm in Minnesota. And I published, edited and published a uh, poetry magazine called The Beggar's Bowl, which I really had a neat experience doing. That was in the days when it was mimeograph machines. I probably a lot of the listeners don't know what that is, but yeah. <laughs> You had to type up a copy and then just roll this drum around and around to make okay. single copies. Okay. And uh, it was it was a really neat thing to do. And I ended up, again, uh, unplanned, becoming a professor of religious studies, uh, primarily at state universities. Uh, and particularly, one of my main focal points was comparative religion or world religions. Mm. So... In a way, that's part of my story is that I have had the opportunity to study other religious traditions, uh, their main stories that motivate, inspire their followers and mm. create their uh, religious imagination for mm. children growing up. So that's given me a, a kind of a good perspective on, on things. I was raised, uh, born in a Catholic family, mm -hmm. uh, and part of the theme in my life is as a, as a child and as a teenager, part of me wanted to become a priest and monk. Mm. And I found out in my late teens when I started college that that really wasn't going to happen. It really wasn't for me uh, after all. So I uh, went in a different route. And that route led to some places I, I totally, bizarre places, I totally never expected to be, not just physical places, but primarily inner spaces, psychological and spiritual places. And when I was in my early 20s, I did not expect to live past 30. Hmm. Uh, I'll get to that in a, in a moment. Uh, yes, but please do. Uh, so here I am today, still standing after all these years. Hmm. And uh, that's kind of surprising. And uh, in a way, uh, part of my conversion story, and my conversion story is not one once upon a time at a certain time and place, but a very prolonged, drawn out, zigzagging, swerving kind of conversion story that was permeated a great deal by religious doubts. Hmm. So people... I've learned through my through my own experience that people who have religious doubts should not feel that that is something contrary to having faith. Religious doubts, I think, can be like a fertilizer hmm. for faith, a uh, 
a, a getting the ground ready for for faith, not something that you you should stop, try to stop thinking about and and think that it's somehow wrong, but that faith, that doubt is, I think, a part of um, how God calls us to himself, paradoxically. And I have some things to say about my view of God and how that has changed over the years. As a child, I grew up uh, thinking uh, of God, generally speaking, somewhat distant, somewhat uh, judgmental, and uh, somewhat fearful, fearsome. Um, and part of my conversion was seeing that very differently. Hmm. Uh, within the last year, I wrote a poem called uh, God Loves Atheists. And in that poem, what I'm basically saying is that God loves atheists because uh, atheists who are seeking truth and don't settle for hmm. false, partial, incomplete, uh, caved in, collapsed, damaging ideas of God. Uh, thanks, thankful. I'm thankful for them because they help religious believers overcome having delusional thoughts about what God is like. In okay. fact, I even say God, in that sense, God Himself is an atheist. Okay. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if anybody's ever said that before, but God appreciates people who don't engage in really superficial ideas or in false ideas of who and what he is. Mm. So um, I'm coming to you from what I call my golden hermitage. Mm -hmm. It's a regular place in a neighborhood. The golden part is because my dog Zeke is a golden retriever. And it's, it's a hermitage because he and I live here alone. Uh, a few years ago in a traumatic event in my life, I, ended up living a solitary life. And that has that was the start of my writing poetry. I see. I'm, I'm a poet revert. For about 45 years, I didn't write much poetry at all. But about four years ago, after a series of vets and probably out of a pain uh, I was experiencing, I started writing poetry. And it has become probably even more than when I was in my 20s, more yeah. of a personal passion, something I look forward to doing, something that, of course, I have to, as everybody would know, struggle with, as anybody who writes knows, uh, the, the staring at the blank screen or the mm -hmm. blank page, because I started, when I started writing, it was typewriters. Mm -hmm. But now, staring at a blank screen, you and the screen, and that's it. And now what? Now what happens? And what do I do? And what do I say? And this is a, this is an impossible thing to do to write a poem. So one of my goals is in asking God before I'm done, before I leave this place, I would like to write at least one good poem. Hmm. I mean, one really good poem that I think yes, this this one really works. Not most of the time works, or a little bit works, but the whole thing comes together, even a short. A short poem so we'll see we'll see if that uh that happens uh in my personal life being a father has been a great highlight and i've recently become a grandfather for the yeah. first time. congratulations thank you uh kind of at an older age than most but uh uh when you when you get older or old um one thing that's hard to convey to other people is that though I may, uh, when I look in the mirror, I see what's happened. <laughs> you know, what? Where is that fifteen or twenty year old? Uh, and I realize, well, he's still here. He was always here. He was here then, and he's here now. He doesn't wrinkle. His skin, his muscles don't deteriorate. He's the real me. He's the me God God wants, and I feel that inside, emotionally, psychologically spiritually, I guess you could put it, I'm as young as I ever have been. My enthusiasm is as great as it ever has been for for life, uh, for writing poetry, for my engaging my imagination, which is one of the great aspects of poetry, is that Einstein said it wasn't reason that is our greatest faculty, it's imagination. And I think that in religious imagination in particular, enables us 
to think of things that are unthinkable and then come up with ways to try to express them, mm. sometimes through words. But I like to think of a poem as not just words, not just images and metaphors of what is said, but a poem also contains a whole lot of silence of, mm. of the th- all the things you didn't say and could have said. Mm. Either you thought of and decided not to say or you didn't think of. So a poem is sound, words, and to me, silence. Interesting. And I've always been a very quiet person. As a child, I was very shy. And uh, even though I became a college professor and feel very comfortable talking in front of groups, um, I still have some of that, some of that within me. And uh, it, uh, it's just something that part of my character, I think. But I really wanted, uh, in these last few years, dedicate my life and my poetry, kind of consecrate them to God. Mm. Okay. Thank you. And I, I, I was reading your website, um, your reasoning and your motivation for writing Christian-based poetry. And I want to discuss that and hear your poem. But before we move on to that, um, you had mentioned earlier that you were going to say a little bit more about your conversion experience. Um, did you want to say anything there or did you already explain what you wanted to say about that? No, I could. Uh, I have not yet said talked about that uh, in the full way. And, well, that, that was part of... Uh, let me give you a specific experience first, and then I'll go back a little bit. I'll, I won't be long on this. Uh, in 1969, I was in a treatment center for alcoholism and drug addiction, which is part of my story, and in Minnesota. And there was a chapel there. And in, a, in, in my memory, in a crucifix on that chapel, there was a crucifix in that chapel. And at the time, I wouldn't call myself a religious believer. I had been through, in my early 20s, I think I basically became a de facto atheist of some sort or other, maybe a de facto agnostic at at best. And in this chapel, looking at that crucifix, the idea or the question came to me, what if it's true? What if this whole thing What if this whole Mm. story, what if this Christian story is true? Mm. Not an image or a metaphor or a symbol or meta-narrative or whatever it could be called, mythic story. What if it's really historically true? What does that mean? And in a sense, that has been a thread through my my conversion story. That as I, I mentioned early on in my life, my teenage years, uh, doubt was part of what mm. I lived mm-hmm. with, religious doubt. Even when I was at least half-heartedly a religious believer, uh, wanted to be a religious believer, even if uh, I didn't feel I was, I, I, I took the, I was able to fully embrace it. Uh, and so that doubt led me to, uh, to question all, all kinds of things. And when I was 21 years old, I was at a university. I was in a class. In fact, it was a uh, 20th century British literature class. Hmm. And just before the class ended, I had my first panic attack. And what that was 1966. Not all that much, I don't think, was known about such things. I didn't get, I tried to get some help, but I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was going somewhat crazy. Maybe I was terminally unique. No one else could possibly know what I was experiencing and going through. So for about 25 years, I went through on and off this high, hyper, mega anxiety with some panic thrown in and didn't know what the heck what it was it was somehow me i was flawed i was uh, less than other people i was i should be embarrassed at this i was weak all those kinds of things and it wasn't until i saw a christian psychiatrist in 1991 i described my my symptoms my story and he basically said somewhat in a half smiling, I would think, thinking back in the kind of guy he was, 
in a matter of fact sort of way, oh, panic and anxiety disorder, maybe a severe case of it, but you have what, you know, not all that unusual. This was a long time ago and probably even more common today. Uh, that was a pretty strange experience. I had been used mm. to thinking of myself as mm. alone in the universe. Mm. Now he's telling me, oh, we got a name for it. We got some treatment for it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many people re recover, can manage their lives, do well afterwards. Uh, so that opened up some paths for me that I hadn't considered. It it basically was a kind of grotesque grace for me mm -hmm. to become a uh, alcoholic and uh, uh, suffering from the panic and anxiety disorder, becoming alcoholic, trying to medicate the the anxiety. I uh, got off the alcohol uh, shortly afterwards, started some drugs, and I became a drug addict. So for about six years, I was medicating myself. I wasn't, uh, wasn't going very far with my spiritual quest. I started writing a journal in those years. Mm. And now, over 50 years later, I on and off have write, written that journal. I'm probably up to volume 40 or 50. I don't wow. Know what it is. Wow. I don't know whoever in the world this time or in the future would ever want to read it, but there it is, all these volumes. And, and that and they contain the uh the minutiae of the story. Uh so after uh becoming a, a drug addict, I I met a man named uh, Jim who had been my AA sponsor, mm -hmm. a wonderful man who kind of lived the Christian faith. I mean, he was mild, he was quiet, but he had been a serious uh, active alcoholic. And so he gave me kind of a hopeful image that it was possible mm. to recover from addiction because mm. for addicts, it's like, it's this can't be done. I, I can't live without the drug, the, the drink or whatever it may be. It's just simply impossible. Well, you start learning the maybe in the New Testament, maybe it says where nothing is impossible for God. Maybe that really should be taken more seriously. So I went into treatment a second time and got off the drugs. And uh, April 5th, earlier this month, was my sobriety birthday for 48 years of sobriety. Wow. wow. So, which is hard to hard to conceive when I was thinking in terms of I can't ever do this. And people who had a couple years of sobriety almost look like old timers or long timers in the uh, in the 12 step programs mm. that I had been associated with. So these kind of uh, odd, sometimes crippling, absurd events in, in the sense that unplanned, I I obviously unplanned. I, I didn't want them. I didn't know what to do with them. They were extremely painful uh, psychologically and damaging spiritually. But it turns out that those very experiences are in my bones and muscles and blood as I sit here and speak to you now. And the fruit, mm. in a sense, the fruit of those experiences mm. are, are here. Doesn't mean I'm done with suffering. I'm not going to experience outer and inner pains and so on. But I've been through them. And I know you can get through them. And so I think faith, that's where faith comes in. Mm. Uh, believing what seems impossible until you see what is impossible is, is right before you. Mm. Or you come to believe what you had only uh you come to experience what you had only believed before as possible. Now you are experiencing the impossible. Mm. And so my poetry, in a way, is a take on, on that. I wanted to, I try to write about some of the things that I know a little bit about. So some of, some of my poetry is about addiction or alcoholism or doubt, uh, aging. I have a I've been writing some series of poems in the last uh, half year or so. One is 
called Aging with God. Hmm. Uh, another is called uh, Septuagenarian Memoirs. Okay. Which my memoirs are from uh, this vantage point in my life, mm -hmm. which 80 years old is just on the horizon. So if that's not so far away, so I'll, if I, uh, God gives me the, the time, I'll be an octogenarian pretty soon. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that'll change me things very much. I think once you get certain certain uh, place, those are just uh, numbers after a while. And I enjoy, uh, I currently teach comparative religions and I enjoy teaching uh, the traditional age students in my, in my classes. And I think they sense that I have uh, enthusiasm for what I'm teaching. And I tried, although it's a state school where I teach here locally, a small college, um, I tried to instill in them that religions and religious faith should be taken seriously. That mm. uh, the great, almost until the modern time, almost all art, literature, music was connected with religious traditions, religious faith. Mm -hmm and that almost all people have been religious who have ever lived in history, including today. Most the overwhelming majority of people around the world still identify with some, some religion. Yes. Yes, and I noticed you, you, you write about that in your uh, biography on your website, and I would invite our listeners to visit your website uh, and then the About Me page as well to read your full description for your motivation. Because I think you have a lot of very um, inspiring thoughts and um, and um, and things to take away from. I'll just read a little bit based on what you were just saying just now. Um, it is my view that the greatest change in human consciousness since its beginning began to occur several centuries ago, a change where the sacred has become obscured, neglected, and rejected in contemporary consciousness and culture. My poetry now and into the future is a way to regain experience of the sacred and the infinite in the very midst of the ordinary and finite. And so I think that connects with what you're describing now. And there's been a, a kind of um, separation uh, in recent times, relatively recent times, between the um, the spiritual and the, the material. And and so it sounds like you're you're trying in your poetry to reunite and reintegrate those aspects and help other people to also um, also reintegrate that sense of wonder and um, enchantment um, with their daily lives. And, um, and I think your poem, um, Here to Eternity, does a, oh, From Here to Eternity, does, a, a really, does that. Um, and so would you be willing to read that poem and, and, and then discuss that a little bit with me? Oh, sure. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, this is, it's called From Here to Eternity. And I should preface it by the room that I'm in is the context for writing this poem. This is where I write my poetry. I'm sitting at my desk right now. And it's just an ordinary room. But again, with your imagination, you can see beyond the, uh, the what is it, cream or gray paint or whatever uh -huh. is on the walls. From my computer and desk in this white-walled home office with Grunewald's crucifixion and resurrection on one wall, an icon of Christ, crucifix, and photos of my kids and dog on another, this is my place to launch voyages in the geography of time, space, and even eternity. This is the hinterland for my work in writing poems about God and ants, sloth and saints, melancholy and mysticism. Wherever my mind and imagination take me through time and into the breach of eternity's saturation of the finite. This is my satellite orbiting earth, my mountaintop monastery, my daily pilgrimage of going nowhere. From this solitary place come visions, for your cell will teach you everything. Silence and strokes on the keyboard, soulfulness and simple love are here for creating a godly driven experiment of emptying my petulant ego drama, a place of gritty and painful grace 
under a spinning overhead fan as I leap and plow into mysteries where here and eternity are one. Thank you. Yeah, so there are certain lines in, in your poem that really jump out at me and, and really cause me to think really deeply. So one of them is eternity is saturation of the finite. And I really like that description of um, just the the physical world, the world that we're in being saturated by eternity, by the presence of God. And I guess the word saturation, it seems like a very um, succinct word to describe that very basic theological um, understanding that we as Christians have about um, the energies of God in the in the world. Another line, um, of course, is from this solitary place come visions for your cell will teach you everything. And so um, that quote, I, I, I've, I've, I've heard that, I believe one of the, is it one of the church fathers or the desert fathers that? Um, desert fathers. Yes. Um, and so it kind of, um, this is a modern, a contemporary application of that. Um, yeah, this is it, my, I'm in myself. Yes, yes. And as you're writing your poems, um, you're all it, writing. It, it seems to me that writing is one of the ways that you are exploring your life, um, God's work in your life, um, being watchful. Um, and so, uh, so that's just a powerful, a powerful um, thought and um, practice. I think. Well, I like I like to think that I'm not just trying to write about the sacred, but that. In the writing is the sacred, or the writing is, is an aspect of the sacred. I, mm. I think of it this way, uh, and, and it's it would be, I think, throughout this poem, that if if there's an eternity, then right now, here and now, we are included in it. It's not something, okay, I live now, I die, and then I go to eternity. Mm. It's, it's here and now. And there's a Zen Buddhist quote. Uh, I have a lot of quotes from all, these, all the religions since I teach them all the time. Yes. But this one uh, I really like. If you can't find the truth right here and now, wherever else do you think you're going to find it? Hmm. It's, that's focused on the Zen really living in the present, sound of a total mindfulness and not living a minute in the past or a minute in the future but totally here and now, because that's the only place you can live. And so I like that idea very much. I think it can be uh, applied very much to a, a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, incidentally, I, I like that line too, that you mentioned, eternity, saturation, the finite. <laughs> it's one of those cases where for those listeners who have written poetry or prose, sometimes you're <clears throat> in writing a poem, it's usually only a line or a phrase. The thought comes to my mind, wow, that's really cool. Where did that come from? Who wrote that? You know, I, I can't, that can't come from me. I mean, that's, that's, it's too good. <laughs> so once, once in a while, it, it's, uh, it keeps the energy going to keep on writing and maybe putting enough of those lines together, uh, we'll be writing that one poem that really is uh, mm. the one I, in a sense, long to write, long to write, and maybe afterwards, maybe I won't have to write anymore. Mm. Sort mm -hmm. of like in, in Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas' story in the 13th century, the great Christian theologian who has influenced the church for 700 years uh, with its theology and philosophy, he was, uh, he was a priest, Catholic priest, so he was celebrating Mass. And during that Mass, he had some kind of mystical experience. And afterwards, he said that all of that experience led him to think that all of his work, which the rest of the world would have considered mammoth and influential to the nth degree, is as so much straw. Mm -hmm. he stopped writing now and ironically just a few months about three months later he died mm -hmm. so uh i'm i'm writing with 
with uh, a kind of uh, goal so that my poetry will become so much straw. Uh, once I wrote a short poem about a, uh, almost like a, not a haiku, but an extended haiku in a way. And it talked about an old poet who had a satchel strapped over his bag full of his poetry that no one had read and no one ever will. Hmm. So there's, there's a value in thinking that, gee, should I write, should I continue to write poetry? What if no one ever reads it? Is it worthwhile writing if no one ever reads it? And of course we want readers and I do, I, I, I wanna, if I can, if God can use me to nudge people towards himself a little bit, that would be wonderful. But, uh, you know, no, there's a lot of publications today uh, that are not so interested in poetry that is faith-based or has a spirituality connection or talks about eternity and meaning and purpose and, and those things, even if it isn't specifically Christian. Uh, I think they many publications will pass on those kinds of things. Hmm. So it's... Uh, yeah, I, as an aside here, I started, first time since my 20s, I started submitting poetry to publications again about last August. Mm. And uh, it's been a very mixed thing. I mean, I had my, I've certainly had my share of rejections. I've been rejected by some of the best. And I had some, fortunately, I also had some accept, acceptances too. Uh, but one of the reasons I have gone with a plan, and that is to publish my own book, once a book of poetry once a year, self-published mm, okay. once a year. Uh, well, I want my my family, my kids. Uh, I'm at the last season of my life, and I want to, a kind of uh, be able to kind of leave some of the poetry that I think might be beneficial behind. They aren't poets and they're not particularly interested in poetry, but maybe in the future, maybe some of it will speak speak to them in a way that it doesn't now, because that's, a, that's another thing about the, going on a pilgrimage or a faith journey. You never know how things that have happened in your life are going to affect you and when, and you don't know when what you say or do or write is going to have its moment it's auspicious moment and affects somebody else. It could be many years into the future and not mm. immediate at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I send a poetry out and editors, editors uh, are inclined to reject it, maybe because it's not very good poetry or they don't like the theme. Uh, I hope that, if, that as at least some of them, they're reading it, it nudges them yes. in a little direction. Oh, okay, yes. Even yes. if they don't accept the poetry. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is kind of a it's somewhat half humorous little sort of approach to it. Yeah. But those who reject your poetry, I hope, will benefit from it. And another line that, um, that I really like from your poem, Alan, is my daily pilgrimage of going nowhere. Because it's there's a little bit of paradox there, because we usually think of pilgrimages as a physical journey to somewhere. And yet here you're describing a different kind of pilgrimage where um, you're staying put physically, but you are journeying um, spiritually. And um, that so that leads to um, a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast this season is, can you describe a pilgrimage that you have been on, whether a spiritual or a, a literal one? And I know you've already been describing much of your spiritual journey and your in your conversion and your um in your faith but um are there any is there anything else you'd like to say about your pilgrimage yes i i mentioned uh, those experiences that i had uh, as grotesque graces and that i have learned that my my soul can learn probably more than I ever can imagine from those experiences that I thought were totally destructive and wasting. I, I mean, I used to think of myself, my, tw my 20s as a, lo a lost decade, basically, 
during from the experiences I was going through. Now I can look back and say, as awful as it was, something was happening that I didn't realize. Um, and it was it, it was it was kind of uh, I used to live on a farm in Minnesota and take care of pigs. And uh, so I know something about manure. And in a way, those grotesque graces were a kind of spiritual manure uh, for what eventually would arise, uprise as, as faith. I ended up uh, returning to uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, it, it really attracted me, its traditions, its intellectual, artistic, and uh, mystical heritage. I've, I've been very interested in mysticism for a long time. Um, in fact, one of my, uh, in my PhD dissertation, uh, which is entitled the, the Transformation of the Idea of the Sacred in the Poetry of Thomas Merton. Mm. There I was combining his writing of poetry with his changing ideas of the sacred. And, and maybe I connected with that because my ideas of the sacred had changed too. I had said earlier in our discussion about my idea of God as a child and uh, how it has changed uh, pretty dramatically. Um, and that's as a result of you know, this pilgrimage going through different kinds of deserts, uh, learning firsthand that the path to heaven is through hell often, and that the path to the sacred is through the profane, not trying to avoid or pretend it's not there, but face it sort of like fear, face it and go right through it. Like the path to peace is through fear, through your own fears, not mm. by trying to pretend they, they don't exist. So my idea of God in this continuous transformation that goes on today for me is that God is essentially pretty crazy. God is, is it has a form of madness about him in that God is crazed, crazed in love for us. Uh, um, he is more than the hound of heaven. Uh, he, he is relentless in seeking us. And so now I can see that in my moments when I felt there was no God or I felt furthest from God, uh, he, was, he was hounding me. He was chasing me. And he was trying to get my attention to help me uh, be receptive to him, to chase him. So in the idea, in a sense, the idea is to have God chasing me and me chasing God at the same time. Mm. So we both end up uh, totally united mm. and in, in a kind of uh, inseparable forever union, mm. which is kind of wow. a Christian, Christian view of heaven in a way. Uh, so I find that my my pilgrimage that goes nowhere because everywhere and nowhere are right here just like eternity is right here i don't have to go to india to seek a guru to have a spiritual or mystical experience if i can't experience god right here on southwest 92nd street in ocala florida where else can i experience it i don't have to go to a monastery i don't have to go to a cathedral um, I don't have to go to a mountaintop. Uh, I can; uh, those things can be fine and good, and I th I think often they are. But in this plain old, somewhat dumpy uh, house I live in, I can experience the fullness of whatever God wants to reveal to me or disclose to me, as far as uh, faith goes. So I'm not without doubt sometimes. And I, I can be thankful for that because it gives me a sense of how atheists think, how agnostics think, how people who have doubts think and feel. So that experience is not alien to me. So it, it's, it enables me maybe to be able to introduce what is meant by the sacred or the spiritual mm -hmm. to persons who, for whom it is a foreign idea, who didn't have the upbringing or 
the, the, the blessing of the particular kind of education that I had, theological education that I had after my sobriety. And uh, those are part of my pilgrimage too, the continuously learning and never, never stopping. Um, and as a, there's a famous, well-known philosopher, modern philosopher who said, uh, the purpose of education is to come to the realization how, of how ignorant we are. Mm -hmm. In a sense, the purpose of spiritual study and awareness is to come to the realization of how empty we are and how good that is. Because the, the opposite of empty, being empty, is to be filled with my ego. Mm. I mentioned in that poem, Ego yes. Drama. Mm -hmm. um, my pilgrimage has also gone through my ego. It's gone through my enemy. I think of my ego as the atheist within. My ego is an atheist. and always will be. What I hope with is that God will gradually reduce and reduce and reduce my ego till uh, it is so small. It is... I don't have to pay any attention to it whatsoever. Once in a while, it rears up. Uh, and I've come to learn that everybody has one. I'm mm. not the only one. And that terminal uniqueness that I talked about, it's, 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 a, it's not true. So that the, the voice in our minds, the, the wanting to somehow place ourselves at the front of the line or in, in, in a position of priority, Mm -hmm. is not is not isolated to just uh, one person or a few people just about everybody has that voice inside them that is constantly chattering and that's why i think uh mystical experience meditation contemplation for a poet are so important because unless you experience the silence someone has said silence is god's first language unless you experience the silence a little bit once in a while, it's hard to say anything. Because if you're speaking or writing out of noise, your inner noise, outer noise, uh, that makes it very, very difficult to gain perspective, to have that precious imagination come into play. Because I think imagination is a great grace, a great gift from God. Uh, that he has given us, that we can imagine what we have not experienced, that we can imagine, in a sense, what we want a poem to be or to say, even before we sit down to write it. We have a, just a, almost an intuitive sense of whatever it is we're, we're thinking of. And it's that enthusiasm, oh, I can't wait to get this, put this in, into, into words. But rather than just throw myself into the, the writing, uh, I need to keep reminding myself to take a pause and be quiet for a moment. It's how I start all my college classes. I rather, and the students must think, well, I don't know what they think of me, but they, what I have them do is put down everything, their phones, everything, and for about half a minute to a minute, we, I have them close their eyes and we just sit there quietly want them to calm down, to relax. They can pray, they can meditate, contemplate. Um, hopefully, I hope I want them to empty themselves of thoughts. I don't want them thinking. I don't want them thinking about thinking. So that when we start the process of learning for that particular class session, we are, our minds still aren't like a swarm of bees from where we have just been to where we are going to go after this class. Mm -hmm. we, we're, we're calmed down and um, can maybe learn in a little deeper way than we might normally. So I think that's how I should approach writing poetry too. Hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. And, and it, re it resembles what you had said earlier about how a poem is not only about what is written or the words, but about the silence as well. And, um, and so not, not only um, about what you haven't said, but also coming from a place of silence and an openness. And I think this poem and what you're saying really helps me to understand that a little more about your poems um, uh, and your, your, your process for writing poems um, and, and, and this coming from your, um, your silence and this cell in which you write. So in, in the last um, 
minutes that we have, could you share with us um, some of the texts or practices that um, strengthen and nourish your faith um, and as well as your writing as well, that, that nourish your writing and faith? Yes. Um, well, of course, uh, the, the Bible, I, I will just assume, assume that, but there are some other, other people that come to mind, uh, some people that come to mind. For example, um, the, the Church Fathers, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, some of the Christian mystics throughout the ages, like John of the Cross and Teresa of Lila, and, and Cloud of Unknowing, and uh, Julian of Norwich, who um, I don't know how far you are from where she was, a, uh, a nun in England. Yes, yes. In the 14th century. I, those people seem so alive to me. Of course, I'm a Catholic. I believe these saints are alive, mm -hmm. as all in God are saints. Oh, there's just about 10,000 that are officially designated saints. But uh, anybody who is, as the in the very early Christian church, anybody who is a believer was a saint. They they acknowledged that they were they were seeking a life of holiness. Now, the word holiness kind of is one of those words that probably has fallen out of. Mm use and meaning because it, it sounds so religious. Mm. One of the ways that I want to write is not to write religious poetry that is that sounds like religious poetry. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be just for other religious people. Um, I want it to be for anybody, for other religious people to see what is familiar to them, but see it in a very different way. And that's why one of the people who probably influences me is was the Catholic novelist and short story writer Flannery O'Connor. Yes, she used uh, the grotesque characters, mm -hmm. grotesque scenes and actions and events in her stories uh, to shock people, to startle them, mm -hmm. to wake them up from their sloth, their spiritual slumber, and get their attention because they had become so subsumed by the repetition. And the religiosity of hearing things over and over again for a lifetime that they didn't mean anything anymore. And they weren't open to understanding anything new anymore. So I, I really like that to uh, uh, shock people sometimes to talk about like a, I've, in that collection, I have uh, a poem called The Absurd God. Usually you don't find those two words together, that God is absurd. Mm -hmm. I heard I, I mentioned during this our, our session today uh, that God is mad. God is crazy, mm -hmm. you know, crazy in love with us, but still, you know, sort of out of his mind in love with us. To use our our human ways of of trying to trying to express 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 things. Uh, Another, um, Thomas Merton, who I wrote my dissertation on, who is a 20th century American poet and monk and mystic writer. Uh, he wrote an autobiography when he was still a young man called The Seven Story Mountain. Mm, yes. And he had a, a profligate kind of life. He was born in France, lived in, in England, and before he came to, the, to America. And uh, that became, strangely enough, right after World War II, and a spiritual autobiography became a bestseller. Uh, I don't know how easy or hard that would be to happen today, mm. but pretty fascinating. And the monasteries, his monastery was full to capacity. People had read his book. And mm. of course, after World War II, the search for meaning was so great, so deep, that people weren't settled for distractions. You know, like T.S. Eliot said, we are distracted from distraction by distractions. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a sense, my pilgrimage, my writing is to try to find a way through the multitude, multiplicity of distractions that we face as a culture, we face as individuals. And sometimes we take the distractions to be the substance of something be the meaning of something when it's just another distraction from our distracted state. And so it's like plowing through things, peeling off layers of unawareness or even layers of ignorance 
before we can get to what really lies below. And those layers are layers of distractions often. Dostoevsky was another guy who I uh, looked to in, in his, bro his brother's Karamazov novel. Uh, there's a scene where Ivan is the older brother Ivan, the atheist, is talking to his younger religious brother, Alosha. And he says to Alosha, what if you could make the whole world happy and people wouldn't have to suffer anymore? Everyone would be peaceful. Just what people want, peace and happiness. Would you do it if all that was required was simply to torture and kill just one human baby. Would you do it? That's that's a that's a question. That's one of that's another question besides that crucifix at the treatment center. It what if it's true? This is one where I think Dostoevsky wants us to think about and answer to ourselves very seriously. Would we do it? My, in my thought is, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I couldn't possibly do it because Christ, that baby would be Christ, would be mm. an, an alter Christi, another Christ, in mm. the image of Christ, mm -hmm. would, be, uh, would be in the image of God. How can, you, how can you do that? There's already been a deicide with Christ on the cross. How could, how could I take upon myself to destroy the image and likeness of God? And that's where sometimes in the spiritual path, doing the right thing is doing what is right, regardless of the consequences. It, it's sometimes very difficult to follow that path particularly if we're looking for good things to happen for us. Mm -hmm. If we want, if we do things because they might benefit us, but will we do things that will have no particular benefit for us, but we do them because they're what God wants us to do. And we know it. Right. Right. Thank you, Alan. There's, sure. you've been sharing a lot of um, wisdom through your, um, your experiences as a teacher, as a poet, as a, as a Christian who's listening for God. And, and as, as I sense as well, kind of going on a, on a spiritual battle or and journey through your, yourself to God in, in, in this room where you, where you write and work and, and, and wherever else you go. Um, but, but in your, your writing and in your praying, I just I can just imagine you doing that, um, just going on this um, on this journey. And so, thank you for sharing um, glimpses of that with us and with the listeners. Um, uh, just a few final thoughts, um, and and I'll give the last word to you. But um, just some reflections that I have from our conversation today. Um, you you mentioned the, the phrase um, grotesque grace as um, a kind of a maybe a in a way, a paradoxical phrase that characterizes much of your pilgrimage. And um, that resembles a line in your poem uh, of how this, um, this room in which you write is a place of gritty and painful grace. And that was another line that stood out to me. Um, and I, I don't often connect grace with grotesque or gritty or painful, but, um, but as I as I as I see your you there in your room and and to our listeners and as described in the poem, so this is not um, giving away anything private because you've written it in your poem. But I can see the painting of the paintings of Grunewald's crucifixion and resurrection behind you, um, and what there too I see that that juxtaposition of gritty and painful grace together. And you mentioned um, that God is a crazy and mad God. Um, madly in love with us, and what could more um, illustrate that? But those two uh, images that you have there of the crucifixion and the resurrection of of God um, meeting us where we are, not expecting us to um, you know pull ourselves up into heaven, but coming down to earth in the form of a man and um, offering Himself for our salvation, and then rising again to take us back uh, to God. Um, 
uh, starting in this world, even now, um, and in extending on into eternity. So those are just my thoughts, and um, in in connecting uh, all of what you've said and and what you've written here, um, and I'd like to uh, encourage our, our readers to to visit your website, um, alanaltaney.com, and um, as well as to um, to check out the book that you published in uh, I, I suppose last year called A Beautiful Absurdity: Christian Poetry of the Sacred, and you mentioned you want to publish one every year. Are are yeah. you are you trying to publish one this year, or have you already published one this year? No, I'm I'm looking to do that this summer. Okay, great. Well, um, please let us know about that, and I I, I can share that with our readers. And um, and 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 thank you for the time that you've taken to share a, a bit of your journey with us. Um, are there any final thoughts you'd like to, to to say? Yeah, two very brief ones come to my mind. One is it's not original with me. When you seek God in your conversion process, uh, the further you uh, proceed into seeking God, you're going to find out that something very interesting, that you find yourself at the center of God. You find yourself in the midst of God's presence. And that when if you're looking deeply within yourself, you're not navel-gazing necessarily, but you're looking at who is, who is it that God wants me to be, because remember, we contain not only our being, we contain the nothingness, just like the silence uh, with noise, we contain nothingness as well as our being. So we are both being and nothingness. And at the center of ourself, what do we find? God. So in a sense, God really is everywhere, even places we don't expect to find him, even places we may not even want to find him. And the last thing is, is you, and I appreciate your, your insightful uh, comments. You mentioned Grunewald's The Crucifixion, which I have on the wall. For those who are familiar with that painting, if you look at it closely, uh, it's a very realistic portrayal of, of Christ. There's no sweet music playing. There's no sentimentality. There's no sweet Jesus. There's no velvet Jesus Painted, uh, painted Jesus on black velvet. This is the ugly Jesus in the most beautiful expression. Uh, it makes his, what if it's true, which it is true, so real. It deepens the grace that is the whole crucifixion. It deepens the experience of any Christian follower of uniting with Christ in his crucifixion so that you can rise with him, uprise with him in his resurrection. And the crucifixion is, is not for, uh, for sissies. The crucifixion is serious stuff. And I guess my final comment is uh, my, my pilgrimage has been traveling along the crucifixion way. So uh, a little bit like, and I'm not equating myself with Paul, but a little bit like Paul, I've had my thorns in the flesh. The, the, we don't know exactly what Paul was referring to, but these things about us that prompted us, that prompted me to finally and fully end up where I wanted to be all along. Maybe to, to find out I was home and didn't know it, but now I do. And it's uh, faith is, is a Christian faith. Please, everybody, don't take it for granted. Uh, see it fresh every day. Your life without it is, is immensely impoverished. Uh, that's putting it mildly. So Christian faith and being able to be inspired by Christian art and literature and poetry uh, is part of of the whole Christian tradition. It's what Christians have experienced all through their lives. Uh, that painting by Grunewald, it was in an, in an infirmary at a monastery where, where people with skin diseases would be brought, like with leprosy and other terrible skin diseases. And they would be put in front of this gory, realistic, terrible um, crucifixion of Jesus. And the idea was they would meditate on it 
and realize the, in one, on one sense, the transitoriness of life in this world, the life we, we the, even if we live to be 100, even if I live another 20, 25 years, my whole life would be like a blip compared to eternity. And, uh, you know, we're always a heartbeat away from eternity. And I think we need to, in our time, place, think a little bit more about the eternal as it, it permeates the finite or our time. As the poem says, eternity's yes. saturation of the infinite. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. Those are, those are, um, Thank you for for sharing those thoughts, and that's that's in addition to other things that you've described. That's uh, a good image to take away with us this this day. So thank you very much, Alan. Um, and um, we look forward to reading more of your work and um, and reading more of the poetry that that you write. Well, I appreciate it, Josh. Thank you for very much for asking me to to talk with you. Mm -hmm. And with that, if you enjoyed today's conversation. Let us know by leaving a review, emailing us at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com, or connecting on various social, social media platforms. You can also visit foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other conversations. There you can sign up for a free weekly newsletter sharing new work every week. And again, thank you to Alan for, for his time today, and thank you all for listening. That's the forecast for today.